Who is the author of fear? What is the source of hopelessness? Who creates or what creates feelings of despondency? I think oftentimes in life, we look at the situations and circumstances around us and there are manifold things that can cause us to feel hopeless or to feel afraid. And I think often we can push that a little bit further and say that if God is providentially in control of all things, then is it his fault that we fear? Is it his fault that we are hopeless? I I think we would all agree that that would be a misguided conclusion, that, that God is not the author of fear, that he has not given us a spirit of fear, and yet we we look around and we certainly see circumstances that trouble us. Well, Martin Luther, in his comments on our passage for this morning, says that it is the devil's work to bring about despondency. That wherever he goes, he leaves behind him the stench of a fearful and troubled heart. But he goes on to say that it is the mission and work of Christ, as First John tells us, to destroy the works of the devil. And in, in our passage this morning, we find Jesus doing just that, seeking to destroy the work of the devil, specifically these disciples who find themselves troubled. But Jesus comes this morning with a comforting word for his own, and and I would argue a comforting word for us as well. Now, this this passage, as we work through it, it does seem a little bit disjointed, but but I would I would say stay stay with us, and and we're gonna hopefully see that as we as we consider these three questions that are asked of Jesus, and more importantly, the three responses, that, that though they seem a little bit disconnected. I think ultimately the theme that we find here is that Jesus is offering a word of comfort to those who are troubled. So to begin this morning, I want to consider the the context of this passage and these times of trouble. Well, in verse 1 of chapter 14 in our text, Jesus tells his disciples, let not your hearts be troubled which should, should cause us to say, okay, why, why would they be troubled in this moment? Well, well, broadly speaking, Jesus' ministry in the book of John got off to a pretty good start. People are following, people are excited about what he's doing, but we see in John and throughout the Gospels that the closer Jesus gets to Jerusalem, the seemingly less fervor that his followers often have, especially the masses that begin to dwindle down fewer and fewer in number. This movement that seemed to have so much potential in a lot of ways seems to be losing steam. In fact, Jesus himself in John's gospel is troubled as he moves towards Jerusalem, as he moves towards the reality of the crucifixion. This will be the the third time that John uses this this word trouble in in a few short chapters. And the first two times refer to Jesus himself. Jesus is is deeply troubled by the path that lays before him. We can think about how the other gospel writers speak of, of the agony that Jesus has as he considers the cross. You might recall the scene of Jesus sweating droplets of blood. 
as he, as he begs the father to let this, this cup of wrath pass from him. Jesus is troubled. In the tone of John 12 and 13, leading up to our passage for this morning, Jesus' teaching becomes more and more ominous in a lot of ways as this hour approaches. He begins to talk about his own departure, giving his followers final instructions for for what life will look like without him. John, the, the gospel writer who has, from the very beginning, played with the themes of light and dark, continues to bring up the idea that darkness is dawning, night is falling, as if to, as if to say that it seems that the light of the world is, is about to be snuffed out. But Jesus, the text tells us, is also troubled by his own companions, In the verses leading up to ours this morning, we have seen Jesus name his own betrayer. Judas, one of his own, will turn him over to the authorities, leading to his arrest and his crucifixion. Jesus is troubled by the other disciples. We see in our passage this morning that the three of his disciples don't seem to understand anything that Jesus has been teaching for the last three years. In fact, one of his closest companions, Simon Peter, will deny his name. Simon, who often acts as a spokesperson for the disciples, will seem to act as their representative in denying Jesus not once, but three times. Truly, truly, I say to you, Simon, The rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Well, you can imagine as the other disciples sit in this upper room, the the feelings that are probably arising as Jesus is talking about his departure. This this man who has walked with the disciples for several years, has taught them, has literally calmed their storms, starts talking about leaving. And to cap it all off, Jesus says that that Peter will deny his very name in the coming hours. This is the darkness and the confusion that Jesus speaks words of comfort into. And so as we think about the disciples' three questions, we can often seem that they're a little bit slow on the uptake, and, and so they are, but you have to think about the stress that they would be under considering what is coming or perhaps considering their confusion as to what Jesus is actually talking about. Well, if this is this time of trouble, let's let's consider these three questions and these words of comfort. We first find Simon Peter, and then Thomas, and then finally Philip addressing the Lord in our passage. Let's consider Simon Peter first. Essentially, the content of his query is this, Lord, where are you going and why can we not follow? Simon Peter and his fervor that we are familiar with seeing says, you know, I'll go, I'll go anywhere with you. I'll follow you even unto death. Ironically, Simon Peter is a lot closer to reality than he even knows is that is exactly where Jesus is going. 
And it is that place that Simon Peter cannot follow, at least, at least yet. Jesus, his way, his path to the Father, to the, Father the, the path that he has been taking in the whole gospel of John, is a place that he must go first. He must go alone because it takes the shape of a cross. And far from Peter laying down his own life for Jesus, as he offers to do, he will deny Jesus' name. Now, the the chapter division between 13 and 14 uh, and and the heading that is probably in your Bible, these headings are often helpful, but but I think here it obscures the oddities of this text. Let's read this together beginning in, in chapter 13, verse 38. Jesus answered, will you lay down your life for me? Truly, truly, I say to you, the rooster will not crow till you have denied me three times. Let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God. Believe also in me. In my father's house, there are many rooms. This seems like a strange line of thought. Peter, you will deny me. And while you are denying me, I will be building a house for you. And, and all your friends who will essentially end up denying me as well. It's, it's, it's strange when you read it together. Many uh, sermons have been preached and, and things have been written on this idea of the father's house and many rooms or, or many mansions, as some of your translations might say. In fact, if you look back into the early church, Augustine has a long section on what these mansions may look like. And I'll, I'll leave that to you to, to consider. But I think the focus here in context is that Jesus answers Peter's denial with the reality that there is plenty of room, even for deniers. Yes, you will deny my name, but as I have continually said in both word and work, there is room for deniers, there is room for tax collectors, there is room for sinners, for Samaritan women, even for wayward disciples, that there is room and there is abundant space for redeemed sinners of all types in the Father's house. And seeing these together really does help us. And of course, it's very in line with what Jesus teaches over and over again. And it's in the midst of of darkness and confusion that Jesus wants his disciples to be comforted with the reality of things to come. This is going to be really important in the coming hours, isn't it? As things get far worse for the disciples, as they look and they see their teacher crucified, it will lead lead to a laying down of life, not Peter's life for Jesus, but Jesus' life for Peter. And it is these dark hours that are a vital part of Christ's preparing a home making a house for his followers. The Father's house is a dwelling for the holy. And without what Jesus is about to do, there would not be a place for them. But because of Jesus' way, the cross, they will have a share in this Father's home. Jesus walks this path alone that his own might have hope. And he wants to 
them to keep this final destination in mind. So that's, that's Peter's or Jesus' response to Peter's concern and question. We can see how that is comforting to look past the immediate, to focus on, on what is held out in the future. As Thomas More writes, earth has no sorrow that heaven cannot heal. I think that's a solace for us as we consider the difficulties of our own life. But what about the next two questions? What about the next two answers that Jesus gives? Are they, are they comforting as well? As we move to, to Thomas, we find that Thomas wants a bit more clarity concerning the situation. Verse five, Lord, we do not know where you are going. How can we know the way or, or, or the path to get there? Thomas, clearly not getting what Jesus is talking about, seems to want some more details, seems to want a, a clearer roadmap, wants precision in location and times. It's often the disciples' issue. It's often our issue in life, isn't it? That we want to know exactly how things are going to play out. Well, Jesus responds to both questions. He says, the destination, the place that I am heading is the Father, is the Father's house, and the path to get there is Jesus himself. He says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. A text that is frequently used as a proof text to show the exclusivity of the Christian faith, oftentimes even pejoratively, that, that there's a lot of hubris for Christians to think that, that we have the only way. Well, is Christianity exclusive? Yes. And, and, and why would we say that? Well, because Jesus tells us it is. I think oftentimes this text can be a little bit heavy because we think of it in that way, but it's true. Opposed to what many want to say about Jesus Jesus claims complete exclusivity in regards to how one approaches God. He is the only way because he is the truth. And that way leads to life because he is life itself. All roads might lead to Rome, but not always lead to God. And the path to the Father's house is as narrow as Christ himself. But we must not remove this verse from its broader context, that, that this again is a comforting announcement, that this is meant for a word of comfort, that Jesus is going to prepare a place. And not only is he preparing a place, but he is paving the path to get there. Is this a comforting word? Well, sure, if the word is standing right before you offering to carry you into eternity. And that is what he is doing right before his disciples. And he is able to do this, Jesus explains, because he is not just any man, but fully God and fully man, one with the Father. I love how Philip responds in the last question. He, he's, he's the kid in class who asks exactly what the teacher just explained that's exactly what happens here. Jesus, you know, says, I am the father and one. And Philip responds, just show us the father and we'll be all right. 
Though seemingly absent-minded, he too shows an element of stress and trouble. I mean, Philip understands that to see God is the greatest good. And that if Jesus is about to leave, if their only hope in this life is about to depart, then, then we must see the Father now or all hope is lost. Philip desires what Moses desires, doesn't he? Show me your glory. Show us what you look like. As we consider the Lord's response to Moses, he says, the best that I can do is show you my goodness. I can show you my backside. And even then, I have to protect you. For no one can look at the face of God and live. But as Luther says of this passage, in Christ, God backs into history. Providing a gracious way of approach where a mediator makes it possible to come to the Father, to see him face to face. For God himself in Christ has put on humanity that we might have a way to the Father, that we might truly see God. For Jesus and the Father are one. Jesus' response to Philip is, if if you want to see the Father, look at me. Look at what I do. Look at what I say. Look at my demeanor toward you. This is vital Christian theology, not only for the disciples, but for us here today. As Paul writes, Jesus is the invisible, is the image of the invisible God. See in the New Testament that he is the radiance of the glory of God, that he is the exact imprint of God's nature. It is Jesus who upholds the universe by the word of his power. That he was with God in the beginning precisely because he is God. As we think about life and approaches to spirituality, there seems to be unending ways to approach God that we might hear. Different ways for man to peer behind the curtain and behold the invisible God. Some say that that God can be found by, by looking within, by seeing the spark of divinity with each, within each one of us and, and beholding God there. Some would say that we find God by, by gazing at the mountains and the sunsets and in our particularly beautiful area, we can see some truth to this, right? As we, as we look at the mountains around us, we look at the beauty the creation, especially as it lies before us so green right now, there's, there's an element of truth to that. The heavens do declare the glory of God. But as Calvin asserts, the understandings of men cannot rise to God's boundless heights. And even as we look to the beauty of the mountains, to the vastness of the sea, to the stars in the sky, we cannot see God as he is as savior, the best we can see is God as judge. God must condescend 
If a sinner wants to see God, he must behold him in Christ and Christ crucified. I think this really does strike at the disciples' issue, their ongoing issue over the coming days. It strikes at the issue with so many who look at the the cross of Christ and see it as complete foolishness. How do you see God there? Jesus in this passage is not merely speaking of the trouble that the disciples find themselves in this moment, but but proleptically speaking of, of what they will experience in the coming hours. That the Son of Man will be delivered to death, a death that by sight is a complete stumbling block. But it is in that death that God will be revealed in all of his saving glory. For, for in Christ, the fullness of deity dwells. And in the cross, the fullness of deity shows himself to be for us, for sinners. We see this constantly in the apostle Paul. How, how can Paul say to the Ephesian elders that I, I did not shrink back from preaching the entire counsel of God to you? And go on to speak to the Corinthians and say, I, I preach nothing among you but Christ and him crucified. How can he say that? Because in the cross of Christ is the whole counsel of God. It is where we see his justice and his wrath, where we see his love and his mercy, where we see his wisdom and kindness, all in the face of the crucified savior. As we look to the cross of Christ, we see God as he is clothed in his gospel not a distant God of days gone by, but God for you. God for Simon Peter, God for Philip, God for doubting Thomas. We find here that the exclusive, exclusivity of the Christian faith is the very kindness of God for us. Approach God in any other fashion, save Christ and him crucified, and you will encounter justice and wrath or an idol created in your image. God has called us to see him in Christ, for he is our approach, for he is the way, the truth, and the life. And this is the word that Jesus comforts his disciples with. In their moment of doubt, denial, and despondency, God says to them, let not your hearts be troubled. Look to me, look to my work, not with the eyes of sight, but with the eyes of faith. Believe in God. Believe also in me. Well, as we consider these comforting words this morning, how do words by a savior who has left the earth about 2,000 years ago do us any good? What do we have to glean from these? Well, I think what we can say is we have some things in common with disciples, that we experience trouble and suffering and difficulty, perhaps from time to time, even doubt. I know none of you probably would, but I, I, I do. Doubt that, that God is good and what he is doing. Well, as a bit of a teaser for Pentecost, which is coming in, in just a few weeks our passage concludes with, with these thoughts. Truly, truly, I say to you, Jesus says, whoever believes in me will also do the works that I do. 
and greater works than these will he do because I go to the Father. How can Jesus say that in his absence, in his departure, greater works will be done? Well, as he will go on to explain, he will he will leave his, send his, his spirit to be with us, as John calls the, the, the comforter. And we'll, we'll consider this on Pentecost Sunday in a few weeks. He will send the spirit to teach us, to teach those who are not in Christ's physical hearing, but those far and wide to the ends of the earth, that all might hear the comforting word of the gospel. Jesus' work will be multiplied. It will be greater as the preached gospel goes forth, as Christ is portrayed as crucified. And churches on Sunday mornings, even today, in Southern California. Because here today, Christ speaks. He speaks these words of comfort to you by his spirit and word and at this table. Because of that, because greater things his followers will do, you can know that these words of comfort really are for you. Have you doubted the wisdom of the path that God has laid out for you? Have you ever been so troubled by it that you have been tempted or even outwardly verbalized denial of Jesus? Well, God in Christ by his spirit today says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Are you fearful? Are you despondent? Have you lost hope because of the darkness of this world? Well, God in Christ by the spirit today says, let not your heart be troubled. Believe in God, believe also in me. Are you today clueless as to what the rest of this path looks like? God in Christ today says to you, let not your heart be troubled. Do you suffer? Are you caught in sin that you just can't seem to shake? God and Christ by his spirit says, believe in God. Believe also in me. Let not your heart be troubled. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father but through me. And it is Jesus who stands before us this morning in word and sacrament, offering a way to the Father. And in our moments of sin and suffering, we can see a God who has suffered for us. A God who has promised to be with us in our suffering. In our moments of sin and unbelief, we can look to a God who has condescended, who has brought the path of salvation to us, who has overcome our sin and our misery and granted us a way to live in his eternal dwelling place. Look to a God who did not spare his own son, but a God who enters into history, who enters into our suffering, that we might have life and life everlasting. If you want to see God this morning, 
Look to him as he is clothed in his gospel, as he has given himself for us and his son. And even in our times of trouble, even now he is saving us as we turn to him in belief. And even in his perceived absence, know that even now he is preparing a place for you. That when he comes again, he will take you to himself so that where he is, you might be also. Let's pray together.